Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. Here's Anderton with the cross. Klinsmann's free! And he's marked his debut with a goal! Jürgen Klinsmann does it! Maybe I can, I can ask you this question. I just wanted to ask you if there's any diving school in London. <laughs> and the cross for Klinsmann! Jürgen Klinsmann puts Tottenham into the lead! Hello everybody and welcome once again to The View from the Lane, the Tottenham Hotspur podcast from The Athletic. I'm Danny Kelly and I'm joined uh, by The Athletic's Jack Pickbrook um, and James Moore. And today we are privileged and honoured to have a very, very special guest. He's one of the best players ever to have played for Tottenham Hotspur. He is, of course, a legend in the world game, World Cup winner um, and a man who I will argue changed English football. It's a huge welcome to Jürgen Klinsmann. How are you, Jürgen? Good. How are you doing? <laughs> really good to see you. Um, I, 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 I used to see you a lot on the football pitch, and less so recently. Uh, thank you. Hi, James, and hi, Jack, as well. Um, as I say to everybody listening to the podcast, we'll get Jürgen's views on the current Spurs team and the Premier League and the upcoming World Cup as well in a while. But obviously, we want to start with your time um, at Spurs. And Jürgen, I was just telling the chaps there before you joined us, it's hard now to look back, for me, maybe for you, on just how huge your transfer to Tottenham was. I was working in the music industry and somebody knew I liked football and stuff and they came in with a copy of the Evening Standard. And there was a picture of Alan Sugar's yacht and you and he, and it was on the front cover of the newspaper, not the back cover. English football was still trying to get itself together. The Premier League was relatively new you were the first actual global footballer to sign in England. Do you have any idea how big the news was when you joined Spurs? To be honest, Danny, I did not. <laughs> I did not. I mean, obviously, you know, the the craziness of the transfer was that uh, Alan Alan Sugar called me called me up. I was in my my apartment there in, in Monaco, where I played under Arsene Wenger for two years and. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, oh, can we have a chat, you know, over, you know, possibility to join Spurs? And I said, yeah, absolutely. I mean, when, where? And he says, well, I'm on my yacht, you know, <laughs> in the harbor of Monte Carlo. And I, that was literally 200 yards away from my apartment. <laughs> so I said, okay, see you in five minutes. And uh, and we talked and uh, there we have a cappuccino and uh, we had a wonderful chat. And he was very straightforward, very open with the situation that Spurs had at, uh, at that specific uh, time with the points deduction. Um, and we were not in the FA Cup initially. And he said to me, listen, I'm going to fight for this. I'm going to go to the extreme for this. So then it went down from 12, I mean, from 12 points deduction to six points deduction for the Premier League. And then obviously we were allowed to play in the FA Cup, which was huge, huge, huge for us. 
And that's how my adventure with Spurs started. And then many other chapters were, were to follow. <laughs> Did you know much about Spurs before um, Alan told you the situation? I just should explain to people there have been some irregularities that the football authorities didn't like and Spurs has. As Jürgen pointed out there, they had been first fined 10 points and thrown out of the FA Cup. Sorry, 12 points and thrown out of the FA Cup. Then it got reduced to six and eventually it all got sorted out. I remember also Spurs... Uh, another time with Alan Sugar, I had, had to pay a million pound fine for fielding a, a, a poor team in the Intertoto Cup against Cologne. Um, and uh, Alan Sugar made the other clubs in the Premier League pay it. Did you know about Spurs as a club before you signed for them? Yeah, I knew about Spurs. Not the magnitude, really. I didn't kind of imagine it that it's such a big club. Um, but I got my first taste. I, I came in late because I played the World Cup, obviously, in 94 in, uh, in America. I came back then and and uh, was trying to sort out the situation with us and Wenger uh, to leave Monaco. And so I came in late in the preparation time and we had just one friendly before starting the Premier League. And that friendly was in Ireland against, I think, a second or third division team. And um, so we flew there. Um, obviously, Adidas was our manager and... Uh, and I got out on the field before the game and just checked, wanted to check the field. Nothing big, you know, it's a little friendly game. <laughs> well, it was a sold out 12,000 people and 10,000 Spurs supporters. And I, I don't know, I think I asked Gary Mabbott, say, Gary, is this uh, our captain? Is, is this normal <laughs> for a friendly game, a preseason game? And he said, yeah, welcome at Spurs. You know, wherever we go, we were followed by 10, 15,000 on a regular base. And and I said, this is this is massive. This is big. And so every week, kind of, I learned more about the history of Spurs and obviously the how big the club is and and what it means to the people, the connectivity to the fans. And for me, it was a, just a wonderful learning experience. Jurgen, nowadays it's very it's very common for superstar players to come to the Premier League, like Kai Havertz, Erling Haaland. It happens every year. But English football was very, very different in 1994. How hard was it for you to adjust to the difference in refereeing, the difference in pitches, training, just and how the conditions were not what you'd had early in your career? Well, for me, um, basically, I felt at home from the first day on because I was never someone who was now measuring a club based on his training facilities or or the magnitude of the stadium. I mean, I played for Inter Milan in front of 85,000 on a regular base. <laughs> and uh, and AS Monaco was a different chapter because this was only sold out when we played Champions League. Um, and uh, so, so my experience there was really kind of getting back down to the ground, getting, yeah, get grounded again <laughs> in a certain way. Um, I, I love this the simplicity of English football. It was straightforward. You have to perform. This is the main thing that you got to do. And then if you want to go off and have a beer in a pub or if you have fish and chips uh, on high road, then do that. It was it was just back to a normal life almost, even if the paparazzi were, were kind of following you for the first eight weeks. But, but uh, um, for me, it was just a wonderful feeling because – the, the way that the, the team, and I think that's it's a general thing in, in, in the Premier League or in, in England, is that, that when you become part of the group um, and you show them that you are just one of the lads, you're just a normal person, then, then uh, um, things will kind of uh, develop its own way. And, and as long as you do your job, my job was to score goals as many as I could and do my work up front there. I had a wonderful striking partner, obviously, with Teddy Sheringham, was very spoiled in that way. Um, but uh, from a human perspective, 
uh, Jack, it was it was just it just was a wonderful uh, coming coming back down to the ground experience. You, you mentioned the paparazzi following you around in those early weeks, and obviously some of the media attention you got when you first came to England in 1994 was uh, we would probably say not massively positive. Did that was that a bit of a drain at all on you? No, it was just, uh, again, it was a learning experience. I didn't understand it, obviously, when I came over and then they came out with the dive, the diver story um, related to the um, 90 World Cup semifinal, which I didn't understand. Um, I had a good friend of mine. He left. Uh, uh, he, he lived in, in, in London for a long time. He lived at that time in close to Monaco. And he just said to me, this is normal. They're going to they're gonna tease you. They're going to provoke you. They want to see a reaction. They want to see how, how you take things. You know, it's the, it's the English human in a certain way. And so don't be offended by it, by no means. You know, just uh, uh, make a joke out of it. And that's why I came up at my first press conference with saying that I have my my, my goggles and my, my, <laughs> my diving glasses with me in the backpack, which I actually had. I didn't bring them out then. Uh, <laughs> so you, had, then, you uh, had the props with you? I had them with me. Oh, you know, brilliant! <laughs> but but uh, obviously, Teddy Sharing had that brilliant idea. Then we went the first game at Sheffield Wednesday, and we arrived at the stadium, and thousands of fans in front of the main stand. You know, brought up the numbers five point eight, five point seven, five point nine. And the, the players were cracking up on the bus, and I didn't. What is this all about? And uh, and I said, you know what? This is this is really cool. I said, you score today, we're all gonna do a dive. Uh, that was Teddy's idea, and, and that kind of turned the story around in a certain way. And and I learned uh, kind of, and I learned a lot about your humor, but also I learned. Um, I took the lesson in a way that you know, don't take yourself too seriously here. You know, don't think that you're coming because you. Maybe you won a World Cup, or you did this and that. You know, now you are you 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 expected to to have a red carpet or some some stuff like that. You know, and and for me it was really fantastic because uh, I I felt like if I give everything I have, even if I don't score, if I have a bad day, but if I fight until the very end of the ninety minutes, then people will accept me. Uh, and respect me and that's how I took it then well that's a huge thing in English football I'm sure in German football too if the fans see that you're trying it goes a very very long way just to talk for those who are too young to remember um, the animosity uh, towards Jürgen some of it real some of it a bit comic book was reflected I think best there was a piece in the Times by a brilliant writer called Matthew Norman and it was called Why I Hate Jürgen Klinsmann Um, Matthew Norman was a Spurs fan um, and still is. I mean, just extraordinary. Six weeks later, he did write why I love Jurgen Klinsmann. Um, already the excitement of you coming um, was fantastic. And we'll talk about your debut in a second. But overall, Jurgen, you also had the, the, the joy or the issue of coming into an Aussie Ardiles team that was unlike anything that anyone had ever seen in England before with the so-called famous five. But just again, to explain to some people, Five out-and-out forwards in the team. It was the least defensive. Spurs are now the most defensive team in English football. Then they were the least defensive team in the world. It was nuts, wasn't it? It was worth a try. <laughs> <laughs> I, I obviously, as a forward, uh, I mean, I loved it. Um, I think the only the only thing that didn't work out um, was defensively. We, we changed a little bit too often the pieces there. And when then Jerry Francis came in, he didn't do much different to Aussie. Aussie did a fantastic job. Um, but what he did was, you know what? He told the back four, you are my back four now. 
we're going to go through it. You know, we're going to do, uh, work through this period and, and we stabilize things uh, and still played pretty much very often with the five forwards. Here and there, he left one out and brought him in at, uh, in the second half. But I mean, it was uh, it was entertaining. It was uh, a high tempo. It was it was really a lot of fun. I mean, for me as a forward, it was just uh, it was wonderful. Jurgen, do you think that the way that Aussie tried to play with Tottenham, with uh, very technical players brought in from abroad, you know, they signed Dumitrescu and Popescu in 1994 as well, playing very attacking football. Like, nowadays, that's what all Premier League teams are like. They've all got very good foreign players. Lots of them try to pass the ball. But do you think maybe back then in 1994, it was perhaps a bit too far ahead of its time or too soon? I think that Aussie actually had the right ideas really in place. From from an educational point of view, the, the way we players were educated those days were that a forward didn't defend. You know, if you lose the ball, you kind of drop back a little bit, but then you stand in the space. So nowadays, you know, the whole team attacks, the whole team defends, you know, a, a forward right away, he drops when when he loses the ball, he's becoming part of the first defensive line. Um, in that way, um, we were just not educated yet. Um, but, but Aussie's thoughts, Aussie's ideas, as you said, they were probably 10 years ahead, 15 years ahead, own way because I would later on uh, late in my career I played uh, a couple of months under Cesar Luis Menotti you know the World Cup winning coach from Argentina and he came with the same ideas you know technically very fast you know passing fast um, and and dribbling and all these elements but made Argentina so world famous um, and I think I think I really understood then also Aussie's approach because that's his roots in a certain way he won the World Cup with Argentina um, and uh, but he was just ahead of the time uh, those days. If we would have known Teddy, for example, Teddy and I would have known how to drop back, how to give our midfield a defensive little bit of a defensive help. You know, do the first screening there basically up front before it goes back into the midfield and in the back line. I think we could have avoided uh, for sure some goals that we conceded because <laughs> we conceded a lot of goals. <laughs> but uh, Jack, you're right. Aussie was ahead of his time. Of the players in that dressing room, I think it's probably safe to say there were players there that you wouldn't have known much about before you moved to Tottenham. Was there anyone that kind of took you by surprise in terms of like how good they were? Was there anyone there you thought was kind of a bit underrated or unheralded before that? Yeah, I mean, definitely Teddy Sheringham, he was not that superstar yet. And I saw in him, listen, you are the, one of the top strikers in the world. You know, the way he read the game, the way he smells where the ball drops, you know, his positioning and all this stuff. But then we had some youngsters coming through that I thought, whoa. And I had a similar experience actually with Arsene Wenger at Monaco the two years prior to that experience because I came to Monaco and Arsene Wenger told me, you have to guide the young players um, that were not known yet. And those young players were Emmanuel Petit, Yuri Djokaev, Lilian Thuram. <laughs> and they became World Cup winners a little bit later. And the same happened to me at Spurs. There was Nicky Barmy, Darren Anderton. Um, there was so much young talent there. Ian Walker was in, in goal. Um, and I said, whoa, these kids are good. I remember one day Colin Calderwood, Scottish center back, you know, he came to me after a couple of months and said, do you think I have the chance one day to play for Scotland? <laughs> and I said to him, Colin, I mean, first it took me a couple of months to understand his Scottish. <laughs> But once I understood a little bit of what he said <laughs> and we became good friends, and was I said, absolutely, you will play for Scotland. If you continue this work rate, if you continue your focus, you will play for Scotland one day. 
And this is uh, um, what I really enjoyed. There was a young team emerging. I, I was part of the older group with Gary Mabbott. Uh, um, and, uh, and, and they became big players. They played for England afterwards and, and they played fantastic careers. Um, you, we talked about your debut against Sheffield Wednesday where you all did the dive together and you started off scoring plenty of goals for Spurs and you continued that way. And the early part of the season was characterised by high-scoring games. Sometimes Spurs would score four, sometimes they would concede three or four as well. Um, and it was clear the way the English media is that this would not be allowed to go on forever, that Aussie would not be allowed the leeway to just go on playing like this. And I think, Jürgen, it all came to a head in a League Cup tie at Notts County. I don't know if, I can't remember who you played in that game, but Spurs, if my memory serves me correctly, got beat 3-0 by Notts County. Um, and it was clear the game was up. Did you play in that game? Yes, I played. Tell us about the game yeah, yeah. against Notts County. I played at Notts County, yeah. yeah. And unfortunately, took that, that era of, of Aussie. Unfortunately, took it to an end. Um, but the transition then came to, to Jerry Francis, who did uh, a, a really calming uh, work a job. He settled, as we said before, he settled the back line a bit. And, and we started to make to get results and we started to climb up the table. But I felt, because I'm personal, was so so good friend with Ozzy and I was a big fan of his. You know, I felt bad about it, but that's then unfortunately how football works. But Ozzy just took it with so much class. He took it just with so much wonderful character and we started to stabilize things under Jerry and and had a fantastic second part of the season as you say the team stabilizes does better you continue to score lots of goals and Spurs have a great run in the FA Cup and the semi-final comes against Everton I got to be honest Jürgen among us fans we were all absolutely convinced not a problem we'll we'll beat Everton um, and then on to the final and Spurs will renew their fantastic record over the years in the FA Cup they got beat 4-1 in that semi-final. Sorry, I'm only bringing up the very difficult games here. Excuse me. We'll get on to your achievements in a minute. What do you remember about that semi-final? Because I think I think it really, it left Spurs fans, but also I think it really hurt the team, didn't it? Yeah, it, and Everton did not only did a fantastic job to win the game and score those goals, but but what they did, they were so extreme physical uh, in, in this match. I mean, they were on the edge of being brutal, actually, uh, in many, many fouls, in many ways. But obviously that's legit and, and that's what they did and they deserved to win it. Uh, for us, it was, you know, we, we, we maybe we kind of were flying already a little bit too high. We thought this is like a fairy tale. We're going to go to the final. We're going to win this final. It's just meant to be that script, you know, in this season after what, all, what Alan Sugar did all year for us. Um, uh, but they brought it to an end and they brought it to a very harsh end. <laughs> In this in this match, and I remember. Yeah, that, I, yes. I think I'm I think I'm trying to um, counsel um, my own psychological scars rather than yours there because uh, I was there as well. Uh, well, and mine as well. It's one of the kind of like the deepest wounds from my childhood. That game probably. Yeah, and I don't know if you, you knew this, but for the last how long is it? Twenty seven years. Spurs fans have basically been moaning about that game because Everton had three sides of the stadium. Everton fans are in three sides of the stadium and Spurs were just in that one big stand at Ellen Road. I'm assuming that didn't actually make any difference to you out on the pitch, really. Can you kind of debunk our rubbish excuse now? No, I, I don't think it had. I mean, we were thrilled, you know, about the atmosphere anyway. And there's always massive Spurs support wherever you go in whatever match. I think we 
we simply were a little bit ahead of the curve. We thought already too much about, you know, how to play at Wembley <laughs> the final. And they came and crushed us. They really, they killed us and uh, they deserved it at the end I mean, of the day. I mean, Jürgen, when I was a young man, which is a while ago now, the German national team, we would all say in this country, it's so physically tough. You can't beat the Germans because they're so physically tough. Um, how did you find... English football wasn't as dirty as it was in the, in the 70s and 80s, I can assure you. But, I mean, I, you, I know you had some head injuries, which you can talk to us about. How did you find the physical side of the game? Because you mentioned there that Everton really set their stall out against Spurs. Yeah, I, I think um, the Premier League, uh, or English football in general, is or was at that time very, very physical, but but a kind of an honest physicality. I mean, not 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 nasty. I had the most brutal fouls I experienced actually in France when I played for Monaco one time against uh, uh, Olympic Marseille. Boli, who scored the the Champions League winning goal for Marseille, I think in '93 or '94. You know, he. He gave me an elbow check by walking. I just walked out of the 18-yard box. The ball was already in midfield. He came from behind and he elbowed me in, in my throat and they had to pull out my tongue again. But uh, Tapi, the, the former president of this team, you know, he blocked it from all media <laughs> reports afterwards. Yeah, he had lots you know. of power, Bernard Tapi, didn't he? he had a lot of power. That's probably not the worst thing he did. So there was some brutal stuff happening in France and Italy too. It was more... England was more straightforward. I mean, I had clashes. I had concussions. At that time, I remember my first game at, that, at Sheffield Wednesday after I... We did the dive and we were up 4-3 in a kind of last two minutes. I crashed just heads with Des Walker. It was just an, an accident. An accident. He left him on the ground, me on the ground. But I, I woke up later on, maybe 10 minutes later on, I woke up in the locker room. They stitched me up already with 11 stitches in the mouth. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, that's just the experience I had in there. But it was more like, the, it was more honest, direct, you know, and that nobody me meant it. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. The overall season, it was fantastic for you. Uh, I think you got 21 goals in the league and 30 overall. And we all loved you. We absolutely loved you. Um, and why not? You had changed people's view about both yourself and I think overseas footballers. And just little things like it was a time when the footballs were starting to get fancier and fancier cars. And I know you, it's probably a cliche to you now, Jürgen, but just you having that very nice convertible Beetle Volkswagen Beetle. Um, I know it's had a 1500cc engine. I was looking at a picture of it the other day. It's a very powerful car, but it was it was kind of humble. Um, and it really changed things. But the really interesting thing was like, you played for a team that was mid-table. Um, and not only you, you, you were Footballer of the Year in England, which was amazing for an overseas player to be the Footballer of the Year. Um, 
and you were second in the Ballon d'Or in a mid. I know, I know. By the end of the year, you'd gone back to Germany, but you won all kinds of awards. I mean, how much do you value that Football of the Year award you got in England? Oh, it was massive. It was a massive recognition, and I felt really, really honored uh, because I know it's also. I mean, there's. We cannot hide the, the history, and and for me as a German coming over, and and then you know the sentiments that are there between English and German football here and there between the fans, which is all normal because it's emotional. <laughs> football is emotional. Um, I I thought this was incredible that I uh, received that recognition, and and I came second the Ballon d'Or only because it was the first year they opened up the Ballon d'Or to players outside of Europe. That was the reason, and and. And uh, George Weah won it then, who played at AC Milan that year. Um, and otherwise, I would have won actually the Ballon d'Or in that year if they wouldn't have done that in, right in that moment. Uh, but to get that recognition from the, the English writers, um, the, the journalists, the people, was massive. And and uh, um, yeah. I liked the way you were against George Weah of AC Milan. They're spoken like a true internationale man there. Very, very good indeed. Listen, we'll come back to your overall, um, the, the influence you had on English football. I want to go forward a couple of years then because, well, no, first of all, let's talk about why, why you left Spurs. Um, because, of course, you know, you've talked about the power of Bernard Tappy. You've talked about other people who have power over the media. When you left Spurs, Alan Sugar, who was a very powerful man as well, painted you completely as the villain, as an absolute villain who's let everybody down and a traitor. Um, you're laughing now, but were you laughing then? No, absolutely not. No, I just, I just hope that people understand because my explanation was very simple. I had a call from Franz Beckenbauer. Um, at the very end of the season. And obviously, Franz Beckenbauer, president uh, of Bayern Munich, calling you, that is like Bobby Charlton calls you, also Alex Ferguson. So that's actually, uh, you have no argument anymore. <laughs> you know, you have to think about it in a couple of seconds. And say, okay, am I going for winning some titles towards the end of my career? And I was already 31 at that uh, moment in time. Or do I continue my wonderful, you know, story or my relationship with, with, with Spurs? Um, but in that moment, I, I remember that call. I was in, in our muse house there in, in Hampstead and my wife was next to me uh, because I saw, I mean, once I said, friends, how, how are you? Then she was already kind of, oh, what's going Packing on? Packing her bags. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, and 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 uh, Franz Beckenbauer said, "You are our number one target at Bayern Munich. You know, we have a new manager coming in. He said it clearly. You are the number one target. Um, and I think you had a time of in your career where maybe you want to win some European trophies, not only domestic ones. And uh, and it basically was done in, in in a minute. That phone call. You know, I knew I I have to go. I have to go. As much as I loved it in this moment, being at Spurs and living in London." Um, and uh, um, and that's what I told Alan Sugar, and obviously he was furious. And I had this clause in my contract that I can leave after a year if I want to leave. Um, and uh, but I totally understood. I understood his emotions and his anger. Um, uh, and uh, I sometimes, you know, over the last years, was asked by by the media people often, you know, um, about. Uh, yeah, Harry Kane's situation. You know, what should Harry do? What where should he go? What uh, you know. Uh, because is he running out of time with uh, winning trophies, winning you know big stuff, and uh, and and I did it. 
I was 31 and I said, you know what, I got to go there. And uh, right away, I won the UEFA Cup. I won the German Championship. And in the, in the middle of it, we won the Euros in 96 then as well in England. Um, so from a purely um, football-specific point of view, it was all the right thing to do. From the human point of view, questionable. Questionable because, I mean, for me, Spurs became a second home. I just loved my neighborhood. I loved the people there. I I, I took my car to the training ground. The training ground was not the training ground that it is today. No, it wasn't. No. It, yeah, but it was fantastic. It was was a nice field, and the, the balls were a little bit heavier than those than today. But everything was okay. But um, I, I had to make that decision. I, I made that decision literally when Franz Beckenbauer was on the line on the phone. I said I cannot say no to. He's, he was my manager, winning the World Cup, you know, years before that, and uh, there was no way I can say no to him. Jürgen, while we're on the topic of, of Harry Kane, you know, he, he's 29 years old. He's got one and a half years left in his contract. He scored 258 goals for Tottenham. Um, you must have some, you, you must be able to understand how he's feeling. What Do you, do you have any suggestion or advice about what maybe no, he should do no, next? There's, there's no suggestions, no, no, no advice. I mean, I'm a huge, huge fan of Harry. There's no doubt about it, as we all are, you know, at, at Spurs. Um, it's a decision that he has to make uh, sooner or later. Or, um, I mean, 29, he knows he has a very good team right now. Very, very good team right now. He has a, a, a very strong-minded uh, manager. So we all hope that he actually starts to win trophies now with Spurs. That's our hope. There's no doubt about it. But also, I think people would forgive him if he would say at a certain point, if it's next summer or the summer after, when his contract is definitely then over, that he will uh, would move on and into a club that might give him, give him maybe a higher probability to win trophies. I still have that hope that it's happening with Spurs. So you you finish your season at Spurs. Alan Sugar pretends to clean his car with your shirt. Um, when you left there to go to Bayern Munich. Could you imagine, in your in your mind, you're 31 years of age, could you have imagined that you would one day come back and play again at Spurs? No, def- definitely not. I mean, this was huge for me too, because Bayern Munich, in a certain way, for me, that was only to go to Franz Beckenbauer and join my former manager. He was then president, and it's the biggest club, you know, by far in Germany. But it's the main rival club of my old team where I grew up, Stuttgart. And that's literally, literally like you would go to Chelsea. First person. So I knew, you know what, this is not going to be easy. I mean, maybe on the on the pitch, I will do my job because I had enough confidence because I was captain of the German national team and all these things. Uh, but lifestyle-wise, you know, kind of as as a as a person was for me was a, was also a big question mark behind that. And maybe I should have followed a sign there from my Volkswagen Beetle because on the way from London to Munich, this Beetle stopped three times. And at the gas station, I literally had to run the engine to fill up the gas on the freeway. And, and I said, I said often to my, my friends, I said, that was a sign. It was a sign. You should not have made that trip. <laughs> but but I, I mean, it worked out totally fine. It was uh, um, from, a, from a football point of view, the right thing to do. Uh, you won your trophies that you badly wanted to win. Um, but I, I paid I paid a, a little price on it too because I ended up arguing with a lot of people, losing a lot of energy off the pitch than actually on the pitch, um, and uh, uh, repeated that as a manager as well. That story with Bayern Munich, 
<laughs> and uh, uh, but those are life lessons. I took those lessons. So not every lesson ends up, you know, positively and uh, with an award. <laughs> not every lesson. Well, I, I I went through those uh, uh, periods, uh, but I always I always um, uh, was very very until today very thankful to everything that happened at White Hart Lane. So a couple of years later, you've, you've won your trophies at Bayern Munich. You've gone to Sampdoria, um, I presume you think, to see out your career at the top level. And Spurs, in the meanwhile, um, in the in the season 97-98, uh, are really, really struggling. And it looks like they're going to get relegated. And who comes back for the last third of the season? But you, how did that come about, Jürgen? Now that's uh, what was kind of an interesting story because I joined, as you said, Sampdoria for an, a year um, contract until the World Cup 98 in France uh, because Cesar Luis Menotti took over the team. Took So he he wanted me. Maybe there was a connection to Ossie. Ossie know, obviously knows that even better. And uh, um, things go fine. Then I get injured. I have an inj- ankle injury. So I'm out. Coming slowly back after three, four months into the season, I come to the training ground at Sampdoria and uh, asking the people, where's, where's the manager? Where, where's the coaching staff? And they tell me, they're gone. So what do you mean they're gone? Menotti took his entire coaching staff and went back to Argentina, took the flight to Buenos Aires. He wanted two more players and the president of the owner of Sampdoria said, we don't have the money to buy two more players. We're really sorry, but that's what it is. That's your roster. And uh, so he left. So then uh, Sampdoria, in, in, in that kind of turbulent time, then went back to their former old manager, uh, Boskov, who won the, um, the title with them years before that under Viali Mancini, this player group, group of players. And, uh, uh, and we then got kind of drawn into the same World Cup group with Yugoslavia, where he was part also of the coaching staff. So he not only coached in Sampdoria, he was also on the coaching staff of the Yugoslavian national team that we faced then in the 98 World Cup. So it happened the first game. He said to me, okay, I, I, I start you the night before I start you, but you're going to be left winger. And I said to him, listen, I said, coach, I mean, I, I'm not a left winger. I'm not a right winger. I'm a center forward. I mean, this is just my position. So not only uh, that he didn't change his mind in terms of the position, he also didn't start me. After that, I went to the president of the owner of Sampdoria, which I had a very good relationship to, and said, listen, we said that this is the the year prior to the World Cup. And and obviously, you know, I'm not sure what happens after the World Cup, but I, I don't want to kind of be a troublemaker and and I want to just do my best I can do. But if it doesn't work out, then just uh, uh, let me look around and see if we find a solution. And he said, Jürgen, you look around and and, uh, and and check things out. And and that's when, you know, uh, Christian Gross at that time, manager of Spurs, basically uh, picked up the phone and said, you know, we are in trouble. You are also a little bit in trouble. Which he was totally right. He was totally right. I said, yeah, I'm in trouble too because I need games. I need to get into a rhythm because I want to win this, the next World Cup there in France. Um, and so this this is how this idea came about. And then right after Christmas, uh, I was uh, uh, back at first. So it wasn't Alan Sugar phoning you first to apologise and, and beg you to come back. It was Christian Gross. Oh, there was no need to apologise to me. Okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, people will need to know uh, Jürgen, that the threat of relegation went on 
and on and on. We always, you know, being Spurs fans, we're kind of assuming surely they'll have put three wins together now and that it'll all be okay. And then really towards the end of the season, it looked like Spurs were going to be relegated. I remember them getting relegated back in the 70s, but that's not supposed to happen um, in 1997-98. And we had a huge game away to Wimbledon, as I recall, and the it seemed like Spurs had to get something out of that game in order to keep themselves up. I will do the spoiler. Spurs got six. You got four. I think Les, Les Ferdinand got the other two. Um, what do you remember? Moussa Saeed scored. Oh, did he? Yeah, okay. Did he? Moussa Saeed, I believe. Well, you got four. That's, that's depth. Thank you, uh, James. For... I was just showing off no, in front no, of no, our guests. Just let me know. Of course. And, uh, otherwise, I will just make it up. And Jürgen knows this already. He can tell. Um, what do you remember about that night? Because that was nuts, wasn't it? Yeah, no, we, we obviously remember it because it, it's, a, it's basically, theoretically, we were saved at this point in time then as well. And this always was massive, a massive game. And and we were all nervous these couple of months. We were all nervous, you know, but we we had quality in the team. Obviously, I played them up front with Les Ferdinand, fantastic forward as well. Um, we had enough quality. I brought in an ex-teammate of mine, Nicola Berti, uh, with me, then basically on that transfer in the winter time, like a Christmas gift. He's a, <laughs> a guy who's played for Italy. I don't know how many times. Um, and, and Nicola helped help pull pull kind of things together as well. Um, but it was it was tricky. It was not easy. Um, there was high uh, a certain tension. There was nervousness around White Hart Lane. I remember, and I had good talks there with Christian Gross. He he had so many good ideas. He wanted to change so many things, Christian. And I just told him, I remember I told him, listen, Christian, I don't think it's about changing things right now. It's it's only about points. Let us just do the work on the field. Uh, forget all the other things, all the good things that you have in mind. You know, he talked about going to hotels prior to the game, like they do now, obviously, all the teams. Nutrition, the right thing to do. All, all these things that make you also a, a better athlete, a better player and all these. But I just said, that's not the time for it right now. We just... We just need to go on a battlefield and we need to get the points. And and with that game against Wimbledon, then we had the points and everybody was just so relieved and was just, just smiling all over the place. And and uh, it, it was massive, not because now of the four goals. It was because we just started to breathe again. We, we were worried. We were worried, yeah. Well, after the break, if you don't, if you'd be so kind, um, we'll spread this out to, you know, modern football um, and, and all that. But I want to finish this first half of this edition of the Viewpoint Lane by asking you, when I started the show, I asked you if you understood how big the transfer was. By the time you'd done your two stints in England, particularly the first one, I think you'd proved that the best players in the world could be attracted to the Premier League. And Alan Sugar deserves some credit for that, I guess, as well. But also you had changed the view of English people about foreign players I mean, Ozzy had done a bit of that when he came in in the late 70s. Eric Cantona was doing a bit of that as well. But it was you, I think, who, who made people think, OK, it's great we've got all these British and Irish players, but there is a world out there. Are you aware now of just how much influence you had on the game in England? Well, I, I feel just fortunate and lucky that I was kind of part of the beginning group. You know, after me came Zola, I came Ruth Gullit, a good friend of mine, and and Viali came then, and and uh, and then also it, it was the beginning then of foreign coaches step by step coming into the Premier League and putting also a bit their stamp on the game um, and uh, on a tactical sense as well. And and uh, but uh, I mean the biggest lesson I I learned 
when I left Germany the first time and I went to Inter Milan, I had to learn to take the people the way they are. The Italians gave me, taught me that lesson. You know, they made it clear to me that you, you need to learn just not expecting things the German way. You know, you have to take the people the way they are. And that helped me so much when I came then to England doing the same thing. And that's, I ended up now in the United States for the last 24 years. And, and obviously here it's a, it's a big cultural uh, melting pot. Um, but I think then the players, they came, a lot of players came into the Premier League already with the experience that they uh, maybe had one chapter already abroad away from their homes. If you look at the Dutch players, the South American players or Italian players, and then they also obviously appreciated the, the English football culture immediately. And, and they all said the same things that I said over the years. You know, when you, when you go into an English ground and you see little kids being in the first row, you know, there's a throw in and you see the kids smiling and, and, and staring at the, the player and you feel that energy, you feel that responsibility towards your uh, uh, fans and towards the people that pay your, your, your check at the end of the day. I mean, this makes it very special. And this is until today makes it very, very special. Jürgen, you, you played in you played for teams all over Europe. You played in stadiums all around the world. Can you describe your how you felt about and your memories of the old White Hart Lane? The, the beauty was really that we met up uh, an hour and a half, two hours prior to a match at White Hart Lane. So there was no hotel or bus ride, you know. So you drove you for your car <laughs> to the stadium, and for me it was wonderful because. You know, you drive through the crowd, you know, until you get to to a high road and you get to your parking spot, and you feel just so responsible. You feel like you know these people they are coming there because you're playing. You know, you and your team are playing there today. So I got already pumped up in the car driving through the crowd and getting to my parking spot because you know I needed to get my way into the stadium. Um, so it made it made you really feel responsible for what you're doing there. It 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 um there was an accountability. To what you're doing, um, and you you were there, and 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 you sucked up all that energy from the crowd, from the people, and you just try to give everything you had, you know, whatever whatever that is on that specific day. Um, but this relationship, I think, is really really unique in England. This type of energy is unique for England. There are other places around the world that I experienced. I mean, it was a couple of years ago. I went actually to see, and that was on my bucket list. The game Boca Juniors against River Plate, and that it was actually frightening. I mean, it was crazy. I mean, that was the White Hart Lane high energy times ten. <laughs> I mean, it was it was so intense that actually the players I could see it on their on their body language when they came on the field. The Boca Juniors players at La Bombonera, um, they, they, there was their fear of failing. They, they feared to fail. And they didn't go in there and said, we're going to beat now River Plate because we have 60,000 kind of crazy fans behind us. No, you could sense that, oh, they're scared. <laughs> they're scared of their own crowd. And they lost that game. And I said that friends of mine, we did a kind of a, a buddy trip down there for five days. And, and, and that's what happened. They won the championship then. But um, so that was a different type of an energy. Um, but what I really enjoyed and still enjoy when I'm fortunate to come and see a, a Premier League match is, is really the, the energy created by the fans in England. It makes it very special for every player. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, 
everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX's Welcome to Wrexham, all new, Thursdays on FX, stream on Hulu. Yes, welcome back everybody to the second half of today's very special edition of The View from the Lane where the usual clowns, me, Danny Kelly, Jack Pitbrook and James Moore are joined by a legend at Spurs and to be a legend after just one and a third seasons takes some doing and of course one of the giants of European football over the past few decades, Jürgen Klinsmann. Jürgen, two questions really. One, what kind of reception do you get when you go back to North London? And two... You've seen the new training ground. You've seen the new stadium. What is the club's potential? Um, first of all, it's it's always a great feeling just to walk through London and uh, yeah, see the old neighborhoods where I lived, you know, and also be at White Hart Lane and and, and suck the energy in there from or suck it up from the, the people and and uh, yeah, they still recognize you. They still you know make make jokes and 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 remember certain things you know from quite a while ago. Um, so yeah, it, it is always for me. It's it's just a good feeling when I when I'm in London. What do you think about the club's potential? Because it has changed significantly, hugely since you were there as a player. Yeah, I mean it's massive. It's massive. The stadium is is second to none. It's a state of the art, uh, uh, one of the most beautiful stadiums and top five in the world. There's no doubt about it. The training ground. Unbelievable, unbelievable. I've, I mean, I if I was a ten year old and kind of get to train on those type of fields, you know, the the youth teams, you know, I would I would be embarrassed. No, I cannot train there. <laughs> Go back to a park field now. It's absolutely gorgeous. I mean, the infrastructure that Daniel Levy um, installed over the last ten years is unbelievable. It's it's fantastic. So this competes with any team in the world, or is far better than most of the teams in the world. And that shows you the potential of this club. You know, now when I look at the roster today of of Spurs, um, obviously the coaching staff very very experienced has done it already. Um, Antonio knows what he's doing. Um, he's a character. You know, not an easy easy character to deal with here and there, um, but he knows what he's doing. And then you go through every position of that roster, uh, which most of the positions are doubled. This is what you need when you want to compete in Europe. You need the positions being doubled and being ready to, to bring in almost the same quality that you have, you know, in the starting eleven. Then when you bring them off the off the bench, so now it's about uh, delivering. <laughs> Danny, it's about uh, Jack and uh, James. It's about delivery of of your potential. This is the tricky part and and uh, requires a lot of consistency. It requires an extreme hunger, and I had these kind of environments when I played for Inter Milan and I played for Bayern Munich. They're, they're, those are clubs that, that don't forgive anything. You know, you are accountable every single day in the locker room, in the dressing room, 
outside towards the media, towards the fans. And if you don't deliver, they tell you. They tell you. I mean, if you're in, in at Inter Milan, if you lose a derby against AC Milan, you're not leaving your flat for three days. You're not even going to an espresso bar and uh, just enjoy one espresso. Uh, because they tell you right away in the face and say, why did you not win this game? Or at least tie it up with AC Milan. And so so this, um, this amount of uh, accountability and responsibility lives with you, is inside of you, and it drives you. And this is what I wish. I wish for, for Spurs that, that this drive becomes so dominant and so not not too extreme but it should be still healthy it should be still positive and with a smile in the face but it should become a norm you know a standard a standard to say you know what every year we want one trophy at least every year if it's not every year then at least one year will be nice <laughs> Jürgen, clearly that that accountability those standards you've just described that's not really been something which Tottenham have had very often in recent years, even though they were very, very good under under Pochettino. Do you think Antonio Conte will be able to create that atmosphere and those standards? He definitely can. Absolutely, Jack. He definitely can because he, he lived that through his uh, life and through his career too. Uh, but uh, again, you know, every culture and every environment is different and, and England is not Italy you know, and uh, or England is not Germany where I experienced that drive and that hunger at Bayern Munich and stuff like that. So it's very particular. So you need to melt with your environment where you at. So this needs to kind of come together at White Hart Lane. It needs to come together in, in, in North London. This type of uh, standard, this type of uh, a drive and, and energy. And uh, and obviously it's, uh, the beauty of, 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 of the game is really, it all comes from the inside. Uh, it grows on the inside and it comes outside. So they're all the biggest teams in the world. They grew out from the inside. They're the big Bayern Munich. Bayern Munich was founded on the 74 World Cup winning team with Franz Beckenbauer, Sepp Meyer, Gerd Müller, Uli Hoeneß, all this. So they all created, the, and same with Main United, the same with the biggest clubs in the world. So it all comes from the inside. So the people really at Weidar Lane need to create this kind of a standard, this kind of a norm, this kind of a hunger and I remember when, when you had two bad games at Bayern Munich, oh, oh it was, uh, nobody was smiling, nobody was happy. There was uh, an, an atmosphere at the training ground like, oh, you want to, right away after five minutes, you want to leave again. <laughs> but no, you have to get the job done. That's what I wish. I mean, I'm just saying now, this is what I wish. I wish that this becomes one day the norm for Spurs, that they say, you know, our standard is we're going to deliver every year a trophy at least, at least every second year. <laughs> and that's what I wish, especially for, for a, 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 what an amazing player like Harry Kane. I wish him that because, holy moly, he played his entire career there and he delivered and, and he, he breaks one record after another. And this well, is why is, it, why is he so good, Jurgen? You're a centre forward. Tell, tell us, um, humble mortals, why Kane is so fantastic. Well, because his decision making is. It's just outstanding. He reads, and he's a bit similar uh, to Teddy Sheringham, you know, always take, making the right decisions at the right time. Um, he's a great finisher, left, right, footed, never up in the air. He takes penalties, which a, a number nine should take because you're hungry for goals, you know, measured by goals, so you take better the penalty. 
and and he's a charismatic leader he's he's a, he knows what to say he knows how to kind of yeah sell the club's philosophy the ambitions and stuff like that and that's why you badly want him to to win trophies now and i'm saying that for spurs but i also say that for england um you know you want him now okay you finished in, in the final four in russia you fin where you work very 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 close in the euros now it's time it's time for delivery it's time to go to qatar and say we're going to go to qatar to win the world cup and nothing else there should be no other word in in the player's mouth uh, and in the coach's mouth you know then going to qatar and say we are so good we proved it the last couple of years we came closer and closer it's about time to get it on the subject of qatar jürgen what how do you assess the chances of England or or Germany as being? Do you see them as being amongst the favourites? Oh, definitely they're amongst the favourites because they have so much quality. You know, it's 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 down to them what they make with that quality. So it's again we're talking again about how to set the standards, <laughs> the expectations, and and how to come go along with those expectations. And I think the expectations for for Spain, England, Germany, France is win the World Cup. Crazy enough, Italy is not there. Because they screwed it up against North Macedonia, and, and they suffer. I have a lot of Italian friends uh, here, and and they 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 suffer. But but this is this is the the expectations you should have, uh, and the same is with Brazil and Argentina. And I think uh, we go to Qatar, and we will see not only a fantastic World Cup with with fantastic football, um, we will see a team winning this World Cup that wants it the most. Uh, so not necessarily going into deeper football-related technical and tactical conversations. I I really believe that this World Cup is decided by a team that wants it the most, that is able to suffer through that you know groups initial group stage with every three days you play a game, and then comes the knockout phase where you know it's 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 a compressed World Cup, only one week of preparation. So it's never been that way before. So, it, but it's it's different. It's extreme, but for everyone. Do you think that plays into one team's hands more than any anybody else's? Because there's kind of been a suggestion for a while that that might help England because we have this vision of our team kind of peaking in the middle of the season and then everyone being really tired at the end of the season. Then they go to the tournament and struggle. I mean, it might be that in Germany they think the same thing about about the German team. I mean, do you think that's going to favour anyone in particular? I think it's it's minimal, but it can favors you minimal. I think it's it's a good thing for for England. They're used to kind of go into the towards the December month, you know, with constant games, you know, and they are used also to play games every three days. Um, I mean, years ago we played it even within two days uh, uh, on Christmas time. But but I, what I just believe is that it's going to be a, a World Cup that hasn't been played that way before never ever happened that way you know with one week preparation only so the form that you carry out from your club team goes straight into your performance for your national team for your country so the timing is crucial so hopefully the players are staying healthy first of and foremost and then hopefully they can keep keep their their good performances that they have with the club team just the weeks prior to the world cup and bring it straight into the world cup i i believe that teams might be a bit at an advantage in Qatar that are not demanding too much perfection. So 
So that's why I, if I would say who's going to win the World Cup, I say first Brazil and second Argentina. Because these are two nations that don't demand perfection. You know, not the perfect hotel, not the perfect training field, not everything perfectly delivered to them. You know, they are not overspoiled in a certain way. They go there and they have a mission. The mission is bring, bring home the World Cup. But Jürgen, in the last 20 years, the South American teams have really underperformed. And really, the big, rich European countries have dominated the last few World Cups. Do you do you think this is the World Cup in which we'll see a return of the South American teams? I could teams? imagine so. Yes, I could imagine so. I mean, Argentina is also the element of Messi. Obviously, he knows if he wants to become, you know, loved forever, you know, in his own country, then he has to come home with a World Cup to get at one kind of level with Diego Armando Maradona in his country. But Brazil, Brazil played, a, a, and I follow here, living in the United States, I followed the South American qualifiers very closely. Brazil played a qualifying campaign, which was unbelievable good. I mean, it was just so much quality. It was so much desire and drive in their games in there. They didn't change the coach after the last tournament, which is very unusual <laughs> for the Brazilians. So that's why I put these two kind of on the very top. But then obviously the European powerhouses, they are there and they they have to prove it now how hungry they are. How can they deal with this unusual preparation, with these usual unusual circumstances playing in the Middle East, the first ever World Cup and, uh, and maybe not having everything just perfect uh, right there for, for these couple of weeks. I mean, uh, it's also, you know, I think Argentina are unbeaten for three years. Brazil had an unbeaten and brilliant qualification. Actually, to their advantage, it's a million, It's a long, long way away from South America and the kind of pressure that we saw was put on the Brazilian team the last time they were the home team. So I think they've got a very, very good chance indeed. Jürgen, do you have any thoughts? I mean, obviously, you know the US team better than most people uh, and I'm sure you follow English football quite closely as well. But what's your take on that game? England, USA? I think, you know, that the US in general over the last 15 to 20 years grew dramatically in football. I mean, uh, if you even follow a little bit the Major League Soccer here that is 26 years old now and and uh, they build an infrastructure that is incredible. It's incredible how much work was put into football here in this country and, and also how the players evolved, you know, step by step. In my time, I coached them for six years. I try to get the players overseas, get them clubs and get them. And now pretty much 80, 90% is in Europe. And then not only anymore in, in just just uh, uh, top teams and uh, top division teams, um, they are in Champions League teams, you know, which is, was unheard of before. So, so the quality definitely rose. The quality is there. They can damage any team out there on a, on a special, on a, on a specific day. Um, it will be, they know the big favorite in this group is England and they, and they are realistic about it. But but their goal is to come through with England. They go come through as a second team. Also not easy because Wales will, they, they will bite your ears off. <laughs> and and Iran, Iran is an emotional um, uh, situation, obviously between both countries. So this game will be highly emotional when this is played and watched around the world, Iran against the United States, not only for football reasons, but also because of the whole political landscape behind it. Um, favorite is England. And and I see England going through there. 
Um, but I hope really for the U.S. that they can make it and become second and then prove a point also in the in the knockout staging game, maybe make it at least to the quarterfinals. Jürgen, some players are have started to talk about what they might do in Qatar to to promote the cause of human rights. And clearly there is a big moral and political element with this World Cup that has not always been the case with previous World Cups. How do you feel about the World Cup being in Qatar? And if you were a player, would you be comfortable playing in Qatar? Well, the, the decision was made on Qatar years, years ago, you know, and uh, it was made by 24 executive members of FIFA, uh, which afterwards, I think 17 were arrested. <laughs> and I was still arrested. Uh, but obviously the, the World Cup went then to Russia and went to Qatar. They, they did it and they couldn't reverse it anymore. And I think based on the decision was made and the World Cup is already played in Russia. And I was in Russia. I mean, obviously working for the BBC um, and, and it was a fantastic World Cup in Russia. It was a joy to be in Moscow, a joy to be in St. Petersburg, the, the cities and the people were super friendly. I'm just saying, and I was now three times in Doha in Qatar, the people are so anxious to showcase the Middle East to the world. They want to prove to everybody around the world that they love football, that they're a big football nation, that they want to experience. And, that, and I think every fan that will go down to Qatar to experience one of the games will have a blast. And we will see high-quality football. And I think it's just fair to give them a chance to prove their point. You know, the decisions were made years, years ago by people that paid already the price for that now. Uh, so I think, I think it's really, it, it should be fair for the people in Qatar, in Doha, to showcase the world that they are able to host a beautiful World Cup. That's my opinion. And I have focused purely on football. Which brings us to the end, Jürgen. And I've got one more question to ask you, and I'm really hoping the answer is, do you, do you still love Tottenham Hotspur? I absolutely love Tottenham Hotspur. No, and it's, uh, uh, um, yeah, I mean, every time I can get a chance and, and come, come back to London, I, I make a trip out to High Road. Jürgen, I don't know how to thank you enough. It's to say, danke schön. Um, absolutely, thank you so very much indeed for joining us here on The View from the Lane. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Clinchman, he's made space. Oh, and he's made Leicester pay. Not over yet. Not by a long way. And Klinsman has the chance to bring Spurs back into it. And has. He's in luck. Can do anything from there. Looking for Klinsman. And Jürgen Klinsman has put Tottenham ahead. His first goal since his return. A tremendous moment for the German and for the whole Spurs crowd. Just the boost they needed. Ferdinand. Still. Is this four for Klinsmann? It might be. It is. A sensational finish. And Spurs have gone mad here at Selhurst. <laughs> well, they joke about the diving. That one is perfectly legitimate. And so too was this header. The Athletic. 
As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.